Welcome to the Know and Do podcast. This is Justin Barton, and I'm really excited about this conversation that I had with Cade Ellsworth. This is a young man who I have a history with going back to days when I was a scoutmaster and a young men's leader in church. He has a great story to tell, and I'm excited for him to be able to tell that to you. While you listen to this conversation, I want you to think of the phrase, see the person, and see how that affects you as you listen to this conversation. In the meantime, I would love it if you subscribed to this podcast, the Know and Do podcast, and also if you came and saw us on Facebook, just look up Know and Do, and you'll find us there on Facebook. Once again, as you listen to this conversation, consider the phrase, see the person. Now sit back and learn something from a 19-year-old young man. I'm sure it will be as beneficial to you as it was and is to me. Cade, thanks for agreeing to having this conversation here. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's taken a while to get this meeting scheduled, but I'm, I'm glad we finally did. Yeah, this time of year is pretty crazy, but uh, I'm glad we've got this done. So tell me what's going on in your life right now. What types of things are you doing right now in your life? Well, right now in my life, I'm serving a church service mission for the LDS Church. I serve, it's, we call it the Interstate Center. It's at a place called Ellsworth Park. And I'm there on Monday and Wednesday and Friday. I go from noon to four. That's the afternoon shift there. And I do indexing and other family history related items. I don't do a whole lot of indexing. I do the steps before indexing, which is image auditing. You look at images and you're basically determining whether or not they're viable to go in to be indexed. And, and most of them are. So I focus my time on that. Very neat. So here's a here's a quick question. You said that it's near Ellsworth Park. Is Ellsworth Park named after one of your peeps? Most likely, yes. There's enough of us. There's enough of you going around. So tell me a little bit about why do you do this family history work as a missionary? What's the point of it? Well, the point of it is, you know, the scriptures say that by the time the end comes, everyone has to have had a chance to hear the gospel and to either accept that or reject that. And the family history work is vital to my church and your church. And uh, it's basically ensuring that people who've passed on to the other side of the veil can have the chance to hear this, the message of the restored gospel. And if they accept the message, they have the opportunity to accept a baptism that's been performed for them by proxy on, on this earth and then other saving ordinances like in the temple. Very cool. Yeah. So Cade and I are both members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And one of the doctrines that set us apart is being able to do proxy work, saving ordinances for those who have passed on before us, who never had the opportunity maybe to hear of even Jesus Christ or or any of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's one of the doctrines of, of the church that we belong to. So Kate, now we'll go backwards in time here. Tell me a little bit about where you come from, your parents, your grandparents, who's the oldest relative you remember, and, and maybe a few memories about uh, those people that have made an impact in your life. All right. Well, I was born in near Richmond, Virginia. How old are My you, dad? by the way? I'm 18 years old. Okay. So my dad's parents are 
Carrie Ellsworth and Joe Ellsworth. And Papa Joe, as we call him, he passed away before me and Colby were born, so we never even got the chance to know him. On my mother's side, it's Bob Bowden and, and Geraldine Bowden. And Grandpa Bowden passed away in 2010, I think. And Grandma Bowden is still with us. She's living in a care home about five minutes away. So tell me about uh, some experiences you had as a very young, some of your first memories maybe that have stuck with you for whatever reason. I think my earliest memory, and it's pretty odd, is I remember standing in the driveway of our house here in Mesa at like age four or five. And I remember dad pulling in with the new pickup and it's a red Ford F-150. And I think that's my earliest memory is dad driving home the pickup with Atlee in the back. And Atlee is one of your sisters, correct? Atlee is my oldest sister, yes. So tell me what's maybe unusual about that memory or what why it has stuck out to you. I don't know. I guess I just associate the truck with my dad because he's had it for as long as I can remember. So I think that's why it sticks out. And it's the same truck he still has? Yep. He's still, we're trying to get it painted, but you know, you know my dad. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I do. Tell us a little bit about what makes you unique or special. Well, the first thing that makes me unique, if you meet me, you'll immediately know it. Some people's trials are on the inside of my trial is very visible on the outside. At age, when I was four months old, I was diagnosed with something called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And in your genes, there is a protein called dystrophin. It basically, when your muscle cells die out, it tells your body to, hey, make new muscle cells so you can still stand and walk and, and do these things that most people can. And I don't have that protein. So when my muscles die out, there is nothing to tell my body to regenerate them. So they, they do not regenerate. And it's a degenerative muscle disease. So it means you start out pretty much normal. You walk as a, as a child and then you eventually get put into a manual wheelchair and then even beyond that, a power wheelchair, which I live in a red power chair now. So that's the most outwardly visible, unique thing about me. How has that affected the interactions you had? You said, you know, when, when somebody first meets you, that's a very visible thing. What type of ways do you see that that has changed? Maybe the way people interact with you compared to what they might with somebody else who's not in a power wheelchair? So I guess let me just start out by saying since I was probably six or seven, every, every person I meet and every confrontation I have is, is dictated by the outward appearance. You know, kids have a habit of not, I, I guess in elementary school, all the kids, they forget that you're in a power chair or even a wheelchair because, you know, people accept you. They've grown up with you and, and they accept you as you are. And there's not really a huge social stigma. And so that was, elementary school was great for me and my twin, Coley, who also suffers from the same disease. So socially, it was not a big problem. It, it really started when we went to junior high, went to Stapley Junior High. And kids at that age, you know, everyone's focused on how they look and how they appear to the outside world. And there was a, a hesitation to approach me and my brother because we're in a wheelchair. We were very shy at the time. We didn't really know how to make friends. So yeah, I guess that was a really big part. We only had two really close friends in uh, junior high. And, and the same thing continued into high school. And I was lucky to have some very, very good friends that could get me through high school. 
So yeah, that's how it affects the the social aspect. You know, that's interesting because you mentioned when you and and your friends were younger, it was just, hey, it's Cade, it's Colby. And then when you got a little bit older and people became more socially aware of, you know, maybe how we look or how others perceive us, it changed a little bit. Was there a specific situation where you had a particularly painful interaction with somebody who maybe you felt betrayed by because it was somebody who you felt you knew and trusted and loved beforehand that maybe did or said something that kind of hurt. Yeah, I do have one example. So there was this kid in in junior high used in our science class and me and him really hit it off. We became good friends or so I thought. And then we finished that year of science. We moved on into eighth grade and, you know, I'd see him in the hall and, and say hi and he, he wouldn't say anything. It's almost like he was afraid to let his other people know. He was in the popular clique, I guess, just afraid to let them know that that we were friends. He kind of ignored me, and we haven't really talked since. And I remember just feeling, I wish people didn't see the wheelchair. I wish they saw the person. And that is really powerful lesson, I think. One that a lot of people, well, I know that I've struggled with things like that before in the past. I've had the blessing over the last 10 years to work closely with professionals that work with people with various disabilities, you know, and then I've been friends with, I've served with, I, I had the opportunity to be your scoutmaster and a, and a young men's leader when you and, and Colby were 12, 13, 14 years old, up through probably close to when you were 15, when we moved away, I think. And I remember when you first turned 12 and became a, a scout and came into the young men's program, I remember thinking, how am I going to do this with these boys in a wheelchair? So maybe now that uh, six plus seven years have gone by, looking back, what are some things, some words of advice you can give to people who get the opportunity to work and serve with you to approach you and to do things with you? I think if you approach someone in a wheelchair, I think the first thing you need to immediately gauge is, you know, you can converse with the person like normal. And the first thing you learn in the first 10 seconds is, is this person mentally acute or do they suffer from a mental disability, which is fine. You should still talk to them like a normal person, like you would anyone. And, you know, be aware, I would say, of certain physical limitations, like I'll stick out my hand for people to shake it and they won't see it because I can't lift my hand above my armrest. So I guess be aware of that and just converse with people regardless of mental disability or no, you can discuss with them normally. And I think they'll appreciate that. And that's a lesson that I learned when we moved away from Mesa, Arizona to we're up in the Spokane, Washington area now. And it's been about three and a half years ago that we did that. The ward that we moved into, there was a, a little girl in a wheelchair and she had, she had lots of other, she had mental disabilities also. But I remember being able to approach her and talk to her and address her just like anyone else and build that foundation, that, that trust, that friendship with her. And I think it has a lot to do with the interactions and the lessons I learned from you and your brother Colby. So I want to touch a little bit more on muscular dystrophy. And then I just want to talk about life in general, not about this disease because it doesn't define you. And that's what I want to get to here is there are many other things that define you and that you um, share with me and with others around you. So tell me a little bit about 
your health and life prospects. Tell me what that road looks like moving forward. So as I said earlier, you start out as a toddler, you walk six or seven, you walk, eventually transition from a, to a manual chair. And then eventually after that transition into a power chair. And my, me and Colby have an older brother named Ethan who also suffered from Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And he passed away in January of 09 at age 26. So me and Colby, all our lives have, have been looking at, you know, age 20 to 30 lifespan. That's just something you learn to accept. And you usually leave that part out when telling people about your life. They feel horrible about it. And you're just like, well, as part of my religion and part of that means I have an eternal perspective. And I think that's why I can, I can accept that lifespan. That's that short because I know that someday I won't have to live in this body. So let me ask you a follow-up on something you said there. You know, people typically don't ask that question because they feel horrible about it. Should people feel bad about that? Or how should that reality change people's perspective about their own lives and maybe about your life? Well, I, I think if somebody learns that about me, I think the first thing they should do is go home and give everyone they love a big hug because, you know, you never know. Tomorrow may be the last day that you see them. It puts it into perspective how precious life is and, and how soon it can be taken away from us. Let me ask you this, or let me tell you this, I guess. When my back hurts and I feel limited physically because, you know, maybe today I'm limping around a little bit, I get a little bit cranky and bitter about things. So if I put myself in your shoes with my current perspective of life, I imagine that I would be pretty bitter for a little while. How have you dealt with that? How have you been able to generally overcome feelings of bitterness or have you ever had them? I think, I think the first thing to address here is that, you know, people always tell me, you know, you're such an inspiration to me. Your, your positivity is always, you know, at peak levels. And I guess the first thing I tell people is that's not true. I guess there's plenty of anger. There's no resentment or bitterness. I know I chose this trial before I came to this earth. And there's a sign in our house that says, God doesn't give us what we can handle. He helps us handle what we are given. Mm. And I don't think it's my place to be mad or sad or, or resentful towards him for giving me this trial because it will eventually be for my own good. But there's been tears. I'm right now with all the pain I experienced, my emotions are pretty well, like a foot below the surface. So little things can set it off. And, and there's plenty of anger and sadness. I'm not a hugely positive person. I'm kind of a nurse, uh, a pessimist. Yeah. Mm, okay. And, and some days it's hard to get out of bed. You know, some days I get out of bed and I'm like, okay, I won. I won today because I got out of bed. But you do put on a, and I don't think it's a show. I think you truly are a fun loving, friendly person who tries to lift and help others and bring them up. Yeah, you have struggles, you have trials, you have sadness, you have anger, just like, you know, everyone else does. But generally, you try to lift and bring others up or ha have fun with them. Why do you strive and do that in your life? Well, I guess throughout my life, there's just been this desire to help others. If, if I see something or someone that needs something, I 
my first reaction is to help them get that thing. There's a couple at the rock. They're pretty old. They can't really stand up that well where the rock is where I work at my mission. And, you know, they were looking for the Clorox wipes to wipe off their keyboard and I got them for them. And I'm just there. We had a social with food and I helped clean up the tables. I helped roll up the, uh, the fall decorations on the table. So I guess I just want to help in the ways that I can because it's hard when you go to a service project, you know, everybody's like, you should go there for moral support. I'm like, what does that mean? I'm I'm going there and, and watching other people serve and people are like, wow, you just get to sit there. So lucky. I'm like, there's nothing I would like more than to, than to physically help with these projects. I admire that, that you're out there doing everything that you are physically able to do to help out in these types of things. I mean, you've got a built-in uh, tractor that you can carry stuff with, which is really cool, I guess, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> so I want to go back to a time when you and I were sitting out on the back patio of your family's cabin in Strawberry, Arizona on a scout camp out. Um, I don't know if you remember much of this conversation, but it's meant a lot to me. And it, it's one where I feel I stuck my foot in my mouth a little bit, but I'm going to go back and relive that and stick my foot in my mouth again, maybe, and then have you share a little bit about that. So I remember sitting there and at that time we were in scouts, we were working on our physical fitness merit badge and you and Colby would come down to the track at the high school there with us and do, you know, and you'd do sit-ups in your chair and, and do as much as you could physically. And at that point you were able to like reach out and hit people and, you know, and, and you had some pretty good strength to the hit. And, and I remember then sitting there on the back patio at the cabin, sitting around a campfire and talking to you. And I asked this question. I said, if you had to, could you stand up right now? And you looked at me kind of like, that was kind of a jerky question to ask. Do you remember this interaction? I I have no recollection of this. Okay. Well, then it was much more powerful to me than it was to you. And it it doesn't sound like it left any permanent No, No, no lasting scars from that. (laughs) Good. But here's kind of what you said to me. You said... You know, some people ask questions that are really dumb. And then you said something like, if I could stand up, I would stand up all day, every day. And then you didn't censure me or anything, but you made it clear that, you know, that was kind of an unfeeling question. Let me go back on that. And, and this, might be, this might be one of those dumb questions, but I want to know. Tell me what you remember about being able to walk and run and stand and do things like that. Tell me about your sensations with that and what you recall about that. Well, you know, nowadays I look at people saying, I'm like, how is that not exhausting after like two minutes? Yeah. People should just be falling over all the time. And I remember a few years ago, I asked my mom, how do you walk? That doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't really remember walking. The physics of it, I don't think people should be able to walk. I'm just looking at people like, wow. You know, that's my experience with walking. I really don't remember it all that well. I remember, I think I remember the last time I walked. I was sitting in my crappy orange power chair, the first one that I got in 2010. This was probably probably that year. And, you know, somebody rang the doorbell and I wanted to see who it was. So I stood up and hung onto the wall for dear life and just kind of shuffled over that. That's my last memory of walking. And the, and the second I stood up, my calves just lit on fire. And that's part of the painfulness of it is why you stop doing it. So you stand up and your calves immediately start cramping. And I think that day I sat down and I, and I never got up again. Wow. I was not aware of that, that 
one of the symptoms of muscular dystrophy is, you know, muscular pain when you exert yourself. I was not aware of that. Do you assume it's just like, you know, when someone like me goes and lifts weights and overdoes it and then is really sore for the next couple of days? Is that kind of how that is? Or is it like a, a burning sensation that immediately happens? And I don't really know. I remember before I was in a manual chair, I would stand up and, you know, there was lots of falling. Colby has a few bald spots on his head from just falling and cocking his head really hard. And mm-hmm. I had a few of those. And, you know, you stand up and there's no warning and you'll just, you're down. Hmm. Well, that's some, I guess, some interesting information there. Another thing I do recall from that conversation on the back porch, back patio of your parents' cabin was that you shared with me your memory at that time, and you were like 12 years old, of what it felt like to walk. And you said it was kind of a swaying sensation, which to me, it sounded, huh, that's not quite how I feel when I walk. But to me, it's normal. It could be a swaying sensation, but it doesn't feel that way. And, and you shared that with me. And, and that is one of my, one of the times in my life where, as I look back at my life, where I gained some wisdom from someone, you, that helped me try to be a better person and helped me apply things in the way I approach others who may not have the same physical or even mental or emotional abilities that I have. And then I hope that in my own disabilities that are less visible than what you've got in your life, I hope others treat me in a way that is also respectful when when they're like way smarter than me and way nicer than me or whatever it may be. So I want to kind of move on and ask you about friends. Tell me the importance of friends in your life. Tell me some experiences, specific experiences you've had with friends that have helped you learn that importance of friends in your life. So I had two or three best friends in high school and and do with it what you will. But there were times in high school when I didn't want to be on this earth anymore. So, mm. but friends were really important to me. I remember in elementary school, I had these good friends. They were twins. There was a boy and a girl and they were our best friends in the whole world. And then they went to post and we went to Stapley. Mm-hmm. We had a hard time with friends there. We befriended a guy named Brian. He was in the band. We befriended a guy named Ben Durant. He has CP, so he walks with a walker mm-hmm. and we're good friends with him. In high school, I remember I sat in the lunchroom the first day of school. I was all alone and I was just like, this is how it's going to be, isn't it? In, in high school, I'm just going to sit alone every day. And then a good friend from elementary school who happens to be in our stake named Garrett, he walked through the door and I called him over and that was, I think, how I made it through freshman years. And I think it's no accident that he walked through the doors as I was looking at it. So we were good friends that year. Had a, had a few more in our posse. We would go to the library and sit there. And then begin sophomore year, everything changed. These guys didn't have my lunch anymore. They weren't having the same hours in lunch. We didn't have the posse. We didn't go to the library. And sophomore year, and this is how I met my best friend, is sophomore year I joined men's choir. It's the the bottom of the barrel choir at Mountain View High School where I attended and graduated. Our director, Mr. Schreiber, had a a seating chart and he placed next to me a guy named Adam Free. We were both sophomores and so we're older than most of the kids in men's course because they're all freshmen. I can only imagine, and I said this to my friend Adam Free, I'm like, I can only imagine 
how awkward you must have felt being sat right next to me that day in men's corner. He admitted that, you know, it was a little awkward, but he got to know me beyond the wheelchair and, and saw that I was completely mentally acute and we became good friends. We ate lunch together that year and then junior year, we were in the same choir again and we ate lunch every day together. And we were, sometimes it was just the two of us that probably 90% of the time it was just the two of us. And he, he's told me that he, he wouldn't trade that for anything. And I think that was a really formative time in our friendship. And, you know, he's helped me a, a ton in high school. So I'm really grateful for that friendship. Right now he's serving at LDS Church Mission in, in Brazil. Hmm. I write to him every week. And in a recent letter he sent me, he said, it was his first week out in the field from out of the Brazil MTC, you know, he's walking everywhere. It's hot. It's humid. And he's like, I was super tired and my legs were cramping. There was one line in his email that really stuck out to me and it was addressed to me. And he said, as he was doing that, he was walking along the street and the very distinct thought came into his head and it was, I'll walk for Cade. Hmm. So I guess that tells you anything about our relationship. We're really close friends. Grateful for him. And I have another friend, RJ. He's serving a mission in Florida. Another best friend, Kate. She was my prom, my senior prom date. So that's fun. I've told this to all my really good friends is I think people have gifts of the spirit. They have gifts of tongues, gifts of all these sorts of things, gifts of service. And I think this is a very rare spiritual gift, but some people are born with extraordinary kindness. Mm. And I feel like, you know, RJ, Adam, Kate, some of my other good friends, they were, they have been blessed with that attribute. Is RJ the same RJ that was in Scouts yes. with us? Yes, he is. He's a good kid. I love that kid too. Oh, I almost forgot. My other best friend mm-hmm. is your son, Josh Barton. <laughs> oh, that one we guy. Made, <laughs> we made friends and I don't even remember. It was so long ago, fifth and sixth grade. Mm-hmm. But I think that friendship really blessed me and Colby's lives. We never had, we'd never had someone in the neighborhood. And Josh, we'd seen him on the playground. And one day he just showed up at our door on a Saturday and he was like you want to hang out and me and Colby were just astounded because that had never ever happened you know where somebody just comes over and like hey I want to hang with you like who wants to hang with us you know so I guess that was really special and he would he would just come over he spent the night at our house before I guess we're super close friends and I think he was blessed with that spiritual attribute as well of of extraordinary kindness that's funny that you said that about Josh. He is a kind kid and he is one that uh, wants to be fair and kind to everybody. But your friendship, you and Colby's friendship to him meant every bit as much and means every bit as much as his to you. When we first moved into that area, he was really having a hard time. And, and I don't remember him just saying, hey, I'm going to go over to Caden Colby's for the first time and just knock and see if they want to hang out. I don't recall that specifically at all. But I remember as it went along that he would always say, hey, I'm going to go over to Caden Colby's and go hang out. And it helped lift him and helped him feel accepted and loved. So you and Colby also have that same gift, even though it's so funny, you guys just rip each other to shreds when you're talking to each we, other. We do. The symbol of love. <laughs> it is. It's like you're a bunch of, and Josh never had any brothers. He's the only boy. He's, our, he's me and Colby's triplet. Yeah. And so you guys are like rough and tumble, beating the heck out of each other and telling others to beat the heck out of Josh and, and whatever it was. So that relationship has been very foundational 
for Josh's life there and moving forward. Even though Josh isn't here right now to say this, I want to thank you and Colby for helping build and lift Josh at that time too. Well, you're very welcome. We're very thankful for Josh's friendship and his parents who raised him to be that kind person. (laughs) No, we did our best to break him and ruin him and he rose above us. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. What are some of your passions, your hobbies, the things that you love to do and create? Create creating is, is one of my favorite things. Me and Colby for years, we inherited it from our older brothers and we have a gigantic Lego collection. And you know, you hear that and you're like, Oh, that's sweet. The disabled person has a little, a bit of Legos. No, (laughs) no, no, no. You don't understand. It's a whole room full. There's at least 20 boxes. We've counted. We have like 105 complete sets and probably 300 more that have been recycled at some point to Mm -hmm. harvest for pieces. (laughs) So that's one of our big hobbies. I like to read. It's been a while since I've read a really good fantasy book. I'm all about magic and, and dragons and swords and that sort of thing. I have a really big book that I want to read, and I know once I start, I won't put it down, so I have to be very careful about when I do that. What is that next book that you really want to read and are putting off for now? There's a guy named Brandon Sanderson, and he wrote something called Mistborn. And he's just he's a machine. He just pumps books out every year. And these new books, he calls them the Stormlight Archives. They're like a thousand pages each. And I read the first one and now the second one is what I'm waiting to read. Uh, has it come out then? Yeah, the three books have come out. And the funny thing is, is 10 books are going to come out in that series. Oh. And I'm not going to live to see the 10th book, which is kind of funny. Yeah, well, is that that's, uh, that's a bummer. Lots of black humor in our house if any of your listeners are going, oh. <gasps> <laughs> you know, that's something that I, I really love about your dad. Your dad, Corey, is one of my mentors and one of my heroes. And I remember several times some things that he said that kind of threw me for a loop. And then he went, ah, oh, it's just the dark humor that we in the Ellsworth home have to have to live with because that's yes. what we've got. And we embrace it and love it. So I want to touch on that a little bit. You mentioned um, Ethan your older brother who had muscular dystrophy and passed away from it at the age of 26. Uh, You and your twin brother, Colby, are both with muscular dystrophy also. Tell us about your sisters and about Ben, your older brother, Ben. All right. The first thing I want to say is in, in conversations, you have to choose whether or not you say, what's wrong with me? Do I have an older brother who had the same thing who died? You know, you kind of gauge whether or not that person would receive that information well. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to this lady the other day and I just felt like telling her that. And so, you know, me and Colby both have Duchenne. People gasped, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have an older brother who passed away. Oh no, I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. And then it comes to, we also have an older brother named Ben, younger than Ethan. And and Ben passed away in in 2005 while on a church mission in Argentina and it involved a train accident. We don't really know exactly what happened, but all we know is that Ben passed away in 2005 on his mission. Mm. That's the one that really gets people. Yeah. From the outside in, and and I know I've known your family for years, so I kind of know the story from a close nearby experience. Mm -hmm. But from an outsider's point of view, somebody would say, how is that even fair? If there is a God, 
And if God is a loving God, how would he ever allow that to happen to one family? Tell me a little bit about how you and your family answer that question. You know, the secular answer would be to say, well, <laughs> life's not fair. Who, who told you that? And, and why did you believe them? And they said life was fair because that's obviously not true. And I think the answer that matters is this, the spiritual answer or the churchy answer. Mm-hmm. I just gave the devotional. I gave like a mini talk at my mission on, on Friday. Mm-hmm. And I told him that I, I've had this idea in my head lately of trials, God giving us trials and, and they really turn into blessings in the end. And that's kind of a paradox. I've been trying to, to wrap my head around that. And I think I found a pretty good explanation. And I think the biggest question that probably our missionaries get, get asked, if God is real and, and he loves us, why do these terrible, awful things happen to us? You know, why are there mass shootings? Why is there a Holocaust? Why do all these terrible things happen? And I think in the question, there's also the answer. God loves us. So it's an if-then statement. If God loves us, then he will give us trials. And I think trials are a direct result of that love. And I think the reason being is that we have trials. They humble us. They bring us to our knees or just folding our arms if you can't kneel, like me and Colby. Mm-hmm. And I think they make us realize we need our Father in Heaven and, and His Son, Jesus Christ, and His atonement to get us through. And we, and we realize that, hey, we don't just need Christ and God in the hardest part of our lives. We need them in every part of our life. And I think that's the blessing is we are humbled enough to realize that we need Him. The story of the refiner's fire, as we pass through the, the figurative refiner's fire, we're turned from this ugly lump of metal that a blacksmith starts with and we're turned into something beautiful from the master blacksmith who is our father in heaven. Mm. And the heat, the heat or the trials is what allows us to be moldable. And I think that analogy works perfectly. The heat makes us moldable for God to turn us into what he knows we can become. And sometimes that lump of metal as it's become molten and, and become moldable or malleable. It hurts. Some, yeah, it hurts. It's it hot. Burns. It's hot. Pounded on. Yeah. You know, I'm a fan of Mike Rose returning the favor. It's a Facebook show. And I don't know if you're familiar with it or have ever heard of it. But just in the last couple of days, a new episode was released. And what he does is he goes out and he finds people who do good things in their communities. And then he learns about what they do. And then he helps them out by improving that charitable organization. The one that was just released last night was about a guy that provides sports equipment for kids who can't afford their own sports equipment so that they can play in these sports. And anyway, where I want to get to in this is he said something that really meant a lot to me that I think ties into what you just said. And I wish I could remember word for word. He said, we play sports to become humble because no one ever wins all the time at sports. There are people that hit home runs in the bottom of the ninth inning and that same person the next day could strike out in the bottom of the ninth inning and lose the game for his team. So after recording this conversation, I went back and I found the exact quote. And that quote is, In defeat comes humility. In humility comes the man. To me, that relates to what you just said. God gives us trials. He gives us all different trials. Some of us may one day hit that home run figuratively in life. 
And the next day or a year later or 20 years later, we may strike out and fail miserably and become humbled because of that. But as we are willing to look at it through, I don't know, wise eyes or with eyes that want to gain wisdom, that humility makes us the men that God needs and wants us to be. Hmm. Thanks for sharing that and triggering that thought in my mind. It's developing some additional thoughts that are helping me. What are some other things that you really like to do? I I fancy myself a writer. I'd like to write a novel someday. That's I've never had the time to do that. I find eloquence in writing rather than speaking. If I can write something, I'd, I'd rather write it. Like in my mission letters, I find eloquence in, in written words, not spoken words. And your mission letters are very uplifting. I've really enjoyed reading them. Tell me a little bit about that novel that you would like to write. Have you already got kind of the basic idea of it? I had the idea. It has yet to turn into a story. I know that you have recently started your own podcast too. Tell us a little bit about that and why you decided to do that. Well, thanks for asking that because that reminds me of my other huge hobby. Ah. If anyone knows me and they know me well, they know that you'd be hard-pressed to find a bigger Star Wars fan than me and Colby and our brother-in-law Brigham. We are just completely and totally obsessed, and, and that's completely fine, I think. So my, I decided to start a podcast talking about the thing I probably love the most, and that's Star Wars. If you go on podcasts, it's called Fully Operational, and then there's a colon, and then it says the Star Wars podcast. Any Star Wars nerds out there, if you want to go give that a listen, then please do. So you've got a couple of episodes already published. I do. Starting a podcast was more work than I anticipated. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of work with editing and everything, huh? Yeah. Uh-huh. What is your hope with that podcast? My hope is just, I just want us to talk about Star Wars. There's not really, you know, people starting podcasts and like, oh, it's going to make me a ton of money someday. I'm like, if you start out with money as the goal, then you will fail. If you yeah. start out with just a passion and wanted to talk about that passion, then then you'll succeed because people's filters are very tuned. So if, you, if you're not passionate, they're not going to listen. So I guess choose something to be passionate about and, and start making something around that. And, and I think you'll be successful. And I agree with that. And I agree with that in lots of areas in life. Yes, it's important. And your dad's taught me this. As I've sought advice from him, he goes, it's important that you earn a living and make money. But you've got to find a passion for what you're doing because that will help everything else grow into place. Is that kind of what you were saying there? Yes. I want to go back, you know, we, we've talked and mentioned a little bit about Colby. He's your twin brother. Personality-wise, you guys are quite different, at least socially. Tell me a little bit about that interplay between him and you, how you lift and support each other, and how maybe you butt heads sometimes. Tell, tell me a little bit about that relationship. I think I agree with you. If, if people know me and Colby, they know that we cannot be more in terms of personality different. We butt heads all the time. We're getting out of the car at our mission and I'm going, shit, Colby, because it just ticks me off. And I likewise to him. So we butt heads a lot, probably more than we should. You know, we play some video games together. There's just times when there's a quiet companionship and, and you feel that 
brotherly bond. And there's not a lot of, hey, Colby, I love you. Hey, Kate, I love you too. There's not a lot of, hey, I know your back surgery was hard. How are you doing? That that just doesn't happen between us, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just an unspoken bond because mm-hmm. we really don't get mushy or sympathetic with each other. <laughs> your brothers. Your brothers don't do that, especially not as teenagers. You beat the heck out of each other, right? Exactly. And that's how you show love for each other is that way, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I do appreciate Colby. He's very, I don't know, he probably would get mad at me for saying this, but he's very innocent. Mm. You know, there's not a lot of, like my dad says about my mom, there's no guile. Everything that comes out of Colby's mouth is exactly what he thinks. So I like that he doesn't mince words. And that can be something that shows love. And that can also be something that shows maybe some, not reproach, but maybe some, uh, hey, you need to back off now, right? Yes. Yes. What are some things that you and he have done together that kind of stick out in your memory as some of the favorite things that you've done and then share something that's maybe not, that, that is something that every time you think of, you go, ugh, I can't believe we did that. There's a lot of Super Smash Bros. memories. Just <laughs> playing Super Smash Bros. together, playing Mario Kart. We're very competitive in that scene. And the weird thing is nobody's ever going to prove who's better at video games because we like are the same skill level pretty much. <laughs> I guess we we watch movies sometimes. You know, we both love Star Wars, so that's something we have in common. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, something that I look back on, I'm like, ugh. We creative differences also are plague. Me and Colby's relationship, we we were like ten or eleven. We were trying to make something out of Lego together. First mistake. <laughs> of course, it started with screaming and ended with me chucking the Lego off the table to shatter into a thousand pieces. So, you know, not our finest moment threw a water bottle at his head at a family reunion, you know, <laughs> lots of stupid things that I'm like, Oh gosh, did I really do that? So what do you learn from those situations where, gosh, did I really do that? What, what are some things that you take away from those types of situations? You know, people call me kind and positive, but there's one thing that I really need to work on. And it's my temper. Mm. My temper is fiery and wrathful and is just below the surface. And I'm really trying to work hard on that and not to yell at people. And I, and I think also because of my back surgery and all the pain that's been associated with that, it's just easier to be angry. Mm. And those emotions just run right beneath the surface and it doesn't take much to get to them. Yeah, I can relate to that. What are some strategies that you have found that help, even if it's just a little bit, with that quick response in anger? Like when we're playing a video game together and we're really disagreeing on something, I'll just leave because mm. I, I don't want to face another argument. Yeah. So I think remove yourself from the situation and just and sit there and think. And chances are you're going to need to go and apologize. I don't know how many times I've said sorry to my mom. I'm kind of sometimes a jerk to her. And mm-hmm. she serves me all the time. So I'm really trying to get better at that. It hurts me when, when her feelings are hurt. So Yeah. I really try to remove myself from the situation and then eventually I will always come back and, and apologize. Yeah. That making amends coming back and trying to make things right to the best of our ability. So that's been really important to me. I've learned that sometimes saying I'm sorry is more important and more powerful than saying I love you. So yeah. saying sorry is really hard. It takes a big man. And mean it right. Cause yeah. you know, sometimes when my kids 
or yeah, you fighting. Know, stop stop hitting your brother. Sorry. Sorry. It doesn't mean anything. That's real easy to say, right? Because mm-hmm. inside we're like, yeah, whatever. I'm not sorry. I'm going to hit him again next time. He, <laughs> but really meaning it. All right. So as you look back at all of your experiences in your life, who is kind of your hero figure in your life and why? My mother. Your mother. Why? If my friends are blessed with extraordinary kindness, she's that times a hundred, a thousand, a thousand percent of the kindness. She's very patient with me sometimes. I give her a lot of crap and she doesn't put up with it, which I'm glad because it makes me learn and apologize. And I guess there's been lots of tears and the tears are usually crying on mother. They usually end up on mom's sleeve or something, you know? Mm-hmm. So she's my, my hero figure and I'm really trying to work on being kinder to her because of all that she does for me. I, I told my mom once, I said, if anything ever happened to you, there would be no point to my existence at all. Mm-hmm. I, I, and mom's a big reason I can get up in the morning because she's the one getting me up. I love your mom too. She's, she's amazing. She is. Who is your fictional or maybe sports or, you know, like a superhero type hero, someone that you may identify with or may strive to look up to? There's a certain character in a book and he's real. He lived thousands of years ago and his name is Captain Moroni. Mm. He's a character from the Book of Mormon, which is another testament of Jesus Christ that the LDS church reads in and, and believes to be scriptural and revelation from God. But Captain Moroni is just this big, strong, righteous man. And there's a verse in there that says, if every man had been like unto Moroni, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. And, you know, Moroni, he has a quick temper like me, I think, mm-hmm. but he knows enough when to apologize and, and when to say sorry to others. And I think he's just a prime example of living righteously so he's kind of my my scriptural hero yeah that's a great great hero to to look to what other nuggets of wisdom would you like to share with me and with uh with the know and do listening audience i I think i have a few i think the first one would, would go back to interacting with with someone in a wheelchair who has a disability and you know interact with them normally get to know them ignore the wheelchair my friend Adam has said that sometimes he forgets I'm in, I'm in a wheelchair sometimes. Josh has said that many times too. And then I'd put in there or he'd put in there. I can't remember which. And then uh, one of them would run over my foot. <laughs> and then I'd remember. <laughs> it's important to be kind. I think if you want to change the world, there's a really simple thing to do. And that's just to be kind to others, make them feel valued. I think try to lift others instead of, tearing them down to lift yourself. You know, I think if everyone lifts each other, then that's a, that's a way better way than tearing people down to lift yourself back to the spiritual aspect of things. And, you know, I'm, I was part of a choir. We had some concerts last week Hmm. and I I had noticed throughout the semester of practicing that there was this girl in in a manual chair and, you know, nobody would really talk to her and she was kind of sitting by herself. And I'm out after the first concert on Thursday night at the, at the Mesa Arts Center and she's part of the group that does that second concert of that night. You know, her mom pushed her in and she's parked her right in front of me, you know, next to me, because I was out there waiting for mom to get the car and, and take me home. Mm-hmm. And I just like immediately started talking to her, realized that she was completely 
mentally normal. You may be a little bit shy, but I just got to know her and I could tell her it meant a lot to her, her to her mom that I, that I would do that. And then the next day I saw her and that's the conversation with her mom that I had about lifespan and my older brothers and my disease, you know, and I just felt right about, about telling her that you can, you can kind of tell. She heard all these things and then she and her daughter, Grace, were about to go and she said, how do you stay positive? Mm. She's like, we're having a little bit of difficulty with that right now. Mm. Obviously referring to her and her daughter. And the question really caught me off guard. I, I was just like, well, I, I guess I haven't really thought of an answer to that question in a while. You know, how can you stay positive? And I just said, I do what I'm supposed to do when I'm supposed to do it and, and where I'm supposed to do it. And, you know, that's praying fasting, reading your scriptures, doing the things that your father in heaven has asked you to do. And I think if you focus on that relationship, relationship with your savior and relationship with God, your your father in heaven, I think everything else in your life can fall into place. But first you need to focus on that relationship. Put God first and all other things will fall into place, huh? Yes. Including the ability to be more positive and how to be positive someone who lifts others. Yep. And I found that in my own life too, especially in other people, not as much in myself because I like you kind of see myself as a person with many flaws. Um, impatience is one of my big flaws. And so I seem to beat myself up a little bit more than I probably should. Just like you probably beat yourself up a little bit more than you probably should sometimes too. But sometimes we do need to beat ourselves up a little bit, right? Yes. For me, the knowledge that God loves me, even when I'm totally impatient, he still loves me. That love hasn't changed one bit and he still is cheering for me. And and that's one of the biggest visuals in my mind is I'm on a, a field of play in a sporting event. I'm the only person there and I'm surrounded by this stadium of ancestors of people who love me and of God who are there cheering for me, even when I fall on my face and strike out to lose the game, they're still cheering for me and that cheering never stops. And that's really lifted me. And Cade, I'm one of those people on your sideline that's cheering for you all the time. I think that you are one of those people on my sideline too, that's cheering for me. Yep. I'm sure of that. So, well, I think, I think the last thing I'd want to leave everyone listening with is, my testimony hmm. and you know you can surround yourself with good people and that's how you stay positive but the, the main reason why i can stay positive is my savior jesus christ and his atonement and resurrection and i can deal with living in this body right now because i know without a doubt i know it for sure 100 percent, that when i die eventually i will be resurrected with a perfect body and it will won't have this disease and I can do all the things I never could in this life. And he also died for my sins, for which I'm, I'm very grateful, eternally indebted to him for doing that for me. I know I've had some things that I've had to work through that could only be resolved through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And I think there was a table and people signed up for their trials in heaven. And I, and I picked this and I, I probably didn't know what I was getting myself into. I had no idea it would be this hard. But I think I checked that box and that's how I can deal with my disability right now, knowing that our mortal life is just a blip. It's not even if you put a dot on a big black canvas, you can even see it. That's how, that's how insignificant our mortal life is. Hmm. And I think having an eternal perspective 
is the key to maintaining positivity and, and having a testimony of, of Jesus Christ and the love that our Father in Heaven has for us and, and doing all the things that, that we're supposed to do. Well, there you have it. Some wise words from a wise young man, a man who has learned and earned a lot of wisdom in his short life. I'm grateful to him for taking some time to have that conversation with me and for sharing such personal and intimate stories that help raise me and help make me grateful for the blessings that I have and for the trials that I have and help make me want to better see the person that everyone is. I recently heard a quoted phrase, and it went something like this. When you meet someone, treat them as if they were in serious crisis, and you will be right more than half the time. I think that the phrase, see the person, goes very well with that quote. I hope that you, as I, have gotten something of value out of this conversation. If you feel the Know and Do podcast is a positive influence in your life, please subscribe to this podcast. Also, please like and do Know and Do on Facebook. Find us there by searching for Know and Do. As always, my experience is that the key to peace and happiness in life is knowing Jesus Christ and doing as He teaches. the lane.